Welcome to the New Books Network. Trump's voters, the Yellow Jackets in France, Putin's base in Russia, the Brexiteers. One thing all these groups have in common is anger. Anger at being left behind, anger about deindustrialization and being left in the Rust Belt, anger at the arrogance and the wealth of the elite. But what more can be said about the nature of that anger and the different aspects of it? And that's the question asked by the book Angrynomics by Eric Lonergan and Mark Blythe, who's Professor of Political Economy at Brown University and who joins me now. Welcome to you. It's lovely to talk to you. And uh, now then, you, you, you say in the book, by way of introduction, economics explains how it's supposed to work, angrynomics, how it actually works. Just uh, talk us through that distinction. Sure. Let's start with where we are just now. It's very hot where you are, right? It is. Right. Okay, so imagine a kind of economic way of looking at this, that there's a long-term view of the world, that there's a certain amount of plant and equipment and people and capital that's deployable, and that creates what we like to call an equilibrium. That equilibrium can be hit with shocks from time to time, whether it's inflation, whether it's war, it's a pandemic. But after a while, you kind of like mean revert back to where that equilibrium is. You suffer the shock, you absorb the shock, and then you get back to the long-term trend. That's a really satisfying view of the world, and we think that it's probably no longer true, and not just in climate. It's also true in politics. We had a set of stable institutions and parties and a set of agendas that were relatively fixed over a long period of time and over the past 30 years those agendas those parties those systems have come under a great deal of pressure they've been repeatedly shocked and rather than revert to kind of a mean we've broken them they've fallen apart in many countries and the defining characteristic of this is not engaged voters it's angry citizens can you give us any explanations as to why the patterns that previously existed no longer seem to be uh, in place? Sure, because in many ways, the, uh, the patterns that they were there to govern no longer occur. So imagine you decompose the world into three sort of segments, right? Let's say there's a political system. Let's say there's a production system and a financial system. So what did we do from 1980 onwards? We globalized our production system, which is we took jobs from here and put them somewhere else. We globalized our financial system that meant that capital could be free to find the highest return no matter where that was and what form that was. And our political system remained firmly at home in a national conception of democracy. And the politicians in charge, given the sort of the economic ideas of the moment, became convinced that they shouldn't really try and do anything about the economy. Most of it was beyond their control, and we should just let things happen. And when we let things happen, capital will find its highest reward, and products will be made in the cheapest possible place, and we'll all have more consumer welfare. And that's a nice sort of vision of what globalization was supposed to be, but what you were actually doing was breaking apart communities. You were sort of um, pulling apart the production chains would made it possible for countries to make stuff in their own countries and uh, you were pulling apart that sense of identity and with it the sense of political efficacy that politics mattered and somehow could have a role in shaping a better life right but that globalization you described produced benefits let's say in bangladesh or wherever it was that had the the jobs you know exported to. Uh, so there was benefit there but there was also benefit in the west i mean in the uk uh, the economy doubled, I think, between 
1918 and 2017. I mean, that's astonishing. Yeah, and poverty tripled. Exactly. That's what I was going to ask you. So, 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 so why is it that if you've got this really enormous economic growth in a, in a you know, very advanced economy, uh, why, why have we got food banks? A very good question, and that's what makes people angry. The answer is very simple, uh, essentially, winner takes all. That uh, the ones you deregulate your financial system, you create very, very strong uh, banks that uh, have an incentive to lend. Uh, you do this at a time when interest rates globally are falling. People lever up on credit so they don't notice the fact that their ability to actually claim their share of productivity gains in terms of wages is being masked by credit growth. And you're able to keep that going for quite some time until you have a big inevitable financial crisis. Then during that financial crisis, you bail out the assets and incomes of the top 20%. And then particularly in the United Kingdom, you have Osborne and Cameron basically declaring a fatwa on local government budgets in the name of austerity, all of which compounded with the bedroom tax, the strivers versus strivers discourse, basically polarised society and drew attention to the fact that the top 10% of British society have made out like bandits, but everyone else is pretty much not. Right, winner takes all, but it, it, it's more than that, isn't it? Because it, it must be something to do with expectations. I mean, you know, if, if you go back, well, if you go back to my my mother's life in the UK after the Second World War, she experienced rationing for many years. You know, everyone, everyone's much better off than they were then. And yet um, there is anger. So why has the wealth that has been delivered, and it's not insubstantial, the wealth that has been delivered to a wide uh, section of the population, why has that res not resolved the issue of anger? Well, I was with you until delivered to a wide section of the population. I mean, that simply isn't true. The vast majority of share ownership, for example, is in the top 10%. Uh, the vast majority of pension assets are in the top 20%. Housing assets as an intergenerational uh, contract. We used to leave kids' houses and also houses were affordable. That has become a pipe dream for basically the entire millennial generation, unless they happen to have very wealthy parents. So we created a huge amount of wealth. We turned it into assets such as housing, such as financial assets, and that became very concentrated in the top 10 to 20% of the population. Yeah, I was going to ask you about housing, because I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, that yeah, many in the younger generation, whether it's the United States or UK, can't afford even a small flat. And yet, it must be the case that compared to, I don't know, 1960s, many, many more people, families in the UK do have a home, which they own. But proportionately, yes, but not as much as you would expect, and also at a much higher cost. So if you think about the United Kingdom just now, London is the locus classicus, but it's not actually the most expensive housing market. That honour goes to Cambridge. The price to income multiple is now 12, and in some areas, 14 to 1. So you would need to live three and a half lifetimes to pay off your mortgage. That's impossible. That's nothing like the 1960s. Yeah. And, and the other point you make in this sort of just opening description of your basic position in the winner takes all bit of it is that the, the new global corporations simply don't pay tax. Yes, and that's another part of it as well. I, I like to say this in talks, and no one ever believes me, but I assure them it's absolutely true. This first came to my attention in 2010 when I noticed that I personally paid more tax than General Electric. You paid more taxes in 2015 and 17 than Apple did. 
Right. Now, particularly in the United States, this is particularly galling because corporations in the U.S. are legal citizens. That is to say that they have the rights to courts, they have the rights to relief through courts, etc. They are regarded to all intents and purposes as citizens. But they're citizens who don't pay taxes. And they're citizens that effectively own the politicians that write the laws to make sure that they don't pay taxes. So you create two classes of citizenship. That makes me angry. Yes, it is. It is aggravating. So, so let's look at the nature of the anger, because you, you've, you know, you've tried to think about that. And you've made a distinction between private anger and public anger. Can you talk us through that? We were writing this book because we'd wanted to write a book together for a long time about basically how inequality affects politics and the Trump moment, etc. And we were at a football match, and it was a terrible football match. It was Watford versus Everton. Right? Can you imagine anything worse than that? And uh, we were standing there in amongst the real sort of uh, Watford ultras, if you want to put it that way. And Eric noticed something, that the real hardcore fans are the ones that spend their time not watching the game, but berating their own fans for being insufficiently angry and loyal. They're kind of like the violence regulators in the stand. They're the people that get the troops over the top when you're facing the guns in the Somme, right? What is it they're doing? They're the people that make sure that collective action happens. And there's something about that ability to basically channel anger in such a way as to get a movement going that is an incredibly important but pretty much understudied part of politics. So Eric went back and read tons of moral philosophy, everything from Aristotle up to the moderns, and came up with this distinction, which is a very old distinction, between public and private anger. So what is it, the public and private anger? Public anger is exactly that type of performative, mobilizing anger that you see in the stands and you see in the army and you see in and other aspects of life. But it's more than that. It's also a way of creating in-groups and out-groups. It's also based mainly on a claim to moral outrage, that there's something that's gone wrong, there's a wrong that needs to be right, and we're identifying not just the fact, but also who is to blame what the redress needs to be. So to take two examples of this, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement from 2020, there's a clear example of moral outrage as a wrong, the wrong is identified it creates a mass movement, it's the channeling of anger. Now, let's take a more controversial one. Let's look at the events of September, uh, sorry, of uh, January 6th, where you have the storming of uh, the US Congress. And what is it you have there? Well, you might say that from a normative point of view, you do not personally agree with those people that the election was stolen, etc. But they're still basing their political claims on a sense of moral outrage. They're still basing their right to storm the building on the fact that a terrible wrong has been committed, and that creates anger and mobilization. So we see this as something that is very, very powerful and kind of new into our politics. It's, it's, it's unleashing a force that hitherto had been bolted down and handled with care, and has now been handled very less, uh, it's been handled uh, much more carelessly in some parts. You say new, but presumably uh, revolutionary movements in the past, you know, France, Russia, wherever, had, had, yeah, were based on, on anger, no? Absolutely. But at the same time, they were also based on a coherent set of ideas, often an ideology, often some kind of crusading movement, whether it is egalité, fraternité, whether it is the goal of socialism. There's a great deal of work and thought that goes into this, whereas what you saw with both January the 6th and Black Lives Matter was a reaction to a moral wrong, an outrage that had to be fixed. It was very much intense of the moment, rather than that kind of worked out revolutionary action. 
Yeah. Okay. still on public anger then. I mean, I think you're saying the moral despair at the heart of it should be listened to, probably. But then you look at um, Jan 6th and, and the whole Trump movement, and you see this nationalist tribal movement, ethno-nationalism, if you like, which seems regressive and something that I presume you don't think you should listen to. Or should you? Well, it's not that you shouldn't listen to it. You should be aware of the fact that millions of Americans are deeply upset, deeply angry, and can be manipulated by a variety of symbols and uh, actors and discourses to engage in actions which are deeply anti-democratic and deeply worrying. So that's something that's worth listening to. How did we get to that situation? Why is it those people are willing to travel across the country in the middle of winter and behave this way? What is it that is driving that? That is the thing that needs to be listened to. It's not a question of whether you agree with the personal morality or not. It's the weaponization of morality for the ends of politics. That's what needs to be paid attention to. And really, at the heart of it, you're saying is inequality. At the heart of it, inequality is there, but it's also, this is why we talked about micro-angrynomics uh, micro in the fourth chapter. It's inequality, but it's also something else. It's what some people call precariousness. It's not just a fact of inequality. I mean, you can reel off these facts all the time. Yes, it's absolutely true that the global south grew while the middle classes in the Western world suffered, but overall the world is richer. Well, you know, nobody lives on an average, so that's not all that relevant. What becomes relevant is when people themselves feel that their life chances and the chances of life chances of their children are much less than how they had had in previous generations. That there's a sense that the future is slipping away. That if there is a world out there that's going to be a bold new world, then they're not part of it. And it, this is what we try to get into this, is the sense of having a very precarious existence combined with inequality that produces this anger on a micro level. I wonder if you, you'd you uh, sort of recognise another possible element. I was just doing a, a, an interview about QAnon and why so many tens of millions of Americans believe in it. And someone who's written a book on it, thought about it a lot, put forward the idea that one of the things that drives people to embrace these kind of ideas is loneliness and a sort of lack of community values, lack of connectivity with family, but also with uh, villages and towns or whatever. Uh, and you know, when you look at the people who who have embraced QAnon, a lot of them are uh, you know, in personal crisis of some kind, often veterans who've come back and found that the connections they used to have no longer exist. Uh, do, does that sort of ring true to you? Yeah, I, I, th I think that absolutely rings true, but I would add something else to it. What is it that the conspiracy theories do? They give you a sense of being smarter than the average bear, that you somehow know something that everyone else doesn't, and that creates a network with other people who know this thing too, and that gives you that sense of, wait for it, moral purpose. It gives you a lens through which to, use, to view the world, which then sort of uncovers the truth as it is according to the theory. And that gives you the sense of empowerment. This gives you a sense of belonging. So I think that's absolutely correct. You've described public anger then. How do you characterize private anger? What's the difference? So private anger is what we identify as the, the micro side of the macro 
public anger, right? If public anger is everyone getting together to be morally outraged and do something about it, private anger is like usually regarded as a problem. You know, if, if you're with a colleague at work and they lose their temper, you take them aside and put an arm around them and say, what's wrong? Is everything okay at home? It, it, private anger is usually seen as a source of shame or weakness. There's a, there's a problem going on. It's signaling something else. And what we try and do in the fourth chapter of the book is talk about how many of the risks that families and individuals face are no longer collectively insured, whether it's in the form of welfare state institutions, whether it's in the form of trade unions for wage protection. Everything is increasingly put onto the individual as the absorber of risk. But those risks are increasing. The price of that risk is increasing. And it's harder and harder for individuals to self-insure, in part because of inequality, but also in part because of things like the way labor market contracts are increasingly written. They're entirely written for the benefit of the employer rather than the employee. Think zero-hour contracts, etc. And then think about the effects of this on family structures, single mothers, putting all that together. These are incredible sources of stress. And that's where we think there's a series of kind of private anger shocks which have been building alongside these macro forces. But you don't think the private anger drives politics as much, or, or do you? I think that it's related to it. It would be very hard to have the kind of political outpourings that we have if people weren't feeling stressed on a micro level at the same time. Right. Now, then, in the book, you have a, a sort of run through of economic history. Uh, so I thought we'd uh, just run through that because uh, it, it helps explain you know, what you're thinking now. So capitalism 1.0, as you might say, um, pre great well great depression so talk us talk us through capitalism 1.0 and then we'll go forward all right, so let me put this into a bigger context. Once we get past the anger in the book, right, we're sort of parsing out what anger is, and we've just done this. We then say there's two things that happen to the economy, two sets of shocks, if you will, that cause people to get angry. One is macro, and the other one is micro. The micro one is the inequality plus precariousness, right? And that's the micro side. The macro side is when the macro economy, all the big stuff, crashes. And there's been three big crashes since the 1870s, and each of them have been... Uh, accompanied by a huge outpouring of anger and then political realignments. And our argument is that the last time that this happened in 2008, we didn't allow a reset. We basically patched up the software, we patched up the system, we let the central banks flood the markets, we made everybody whole, and we didn't address any of the underlying pathologies. So let me go through the other ones very quickly and give you an example as to how to think about this. The analogy we use in the book is capitalism is a computer. It's got hardware in the form of the institutions that make up market economies, it's got software in terms of the economic ideas of the day. Capitalism 1.0 was basically the gold standard, globalization 1.0 open capital accounts, free movement of labor, free movement of capital, free movement of goods across the world. And it was a tremendous success. It had a pathology in it, if you will, there was a bug in the software. And the bug in the software was deflation. Why? Because under a gold standard where everybody's trying to keep gold and not let it out, what you want to do is to become a net exporter. The problem is the whole world can't have net export or somebody has to be doing the imports. So that creates deflationary pressure on prices. That shows up in ever lower wages and eventually the system cracks. And that's basically what we got, which culminated, began in World War I and culminated in the crisis in the 1920s and into the 1930s. Capitalism 2.0 is a direct response to this. Let's remake the soft, let's remake the hardware. Let's build institutions which are much more national focused. Let's forget about the global. Let's do what The Economist magazine called in 1946, trade in things you can buy, sell and drop on your foot. Why? Because they create employment and employment creates 
wages, and wages create high levels of welfare. So it was a real reorientation of the political economy to these kind of national welfare state models. And of course, guess what? There's a bug in the software. Well, what's the bug in the software? Well, there was a couple, but the main one was inflation. Why? Because if you run a full employment economy behind pretty close barriers uh, to exit, particularly for capital, then eventually you're going to create wage pressure. That wage pressure is going to push up prices and there's going to be a crisis of profits, which is what we saw in the 1970s. The response to this was to get rid of the inflation. And how did we do this? We globalized, we privatized, we liberalized, and we create capitalism 3.0. Now, this much more deregulated, international, globalized capitalism seems to be working for a while, but as we said when we started talking, underneath it all there's a big run-up in inequality and precariousness, which is covered over by the issuance of massive amounts of credit, what banks called assets. And of course, what banks call assets, everybody else call liabilities, and when normal people can't pay their liabilities, the bank's assets go bad, and you have a financial crisis. But in 2008, rather than doing what we did in 1945, or even in 1970 through 1980, we didn't change the hardware, we didn't rewrite the software, we just basically put a patch in the form of tons of liquidity from the central banks and then pretended that everything was fine without addressing any of the underlying issues. And as we said earlier, the result of this was a, bill, uh, a, a turn to austerity policy, particularly in countries like Britain, which compounded these inequalities, and then a polarization of the population politically that culminated in Brexit, the great sort of distraction of that period. And now Britain finds itself devoid of productivity growth, excluded from excess. Uh, export markets. It's overheating like the rest of the planet is, and it's not in a good place. And guess what? People are very angry. So what would you propose as, you know, the great reset in the face of 2008? You're saying what happened and what you think was done incorrectly. What should have been done? It's very, very hard for me to admit this, but I have to admit it. And I think that we should let the banks fail. Because ultimately, all you've done is created an even more concentrated system whereby too big to fail becomes a business model. And one of the things that's happened across the whole of the British economy, a great book if you want to go have a look at this, is by Brett Christophers called Rontier Capitalism, came out in 2020. He goes sector by sector through the British economy. And basically, Britain doesn't really make anything anymore that is like productivity enhancing. It's just about the control of assets and charging people fees for using them. And it's a handful of companies in each sector that basically does this. And it's just a series of rent extractions, which is basically zero some against the economy itself. And that's ultimately, you know, what we built from this. This notion of sort of like global competitive Britain is a complete myth. It's basically an inward looking society that exists to generate rents for insiders, mainly off of things like government contracts. Well, th there are other uh, sort of what might seem obvious solutions to the problems you've raised and the, some of the sources of the anger. So let's just run through some of those and you can tell us what you think of them. I mean, one obvious thing would be to tax the rich and, and, and the corporations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly, I mean, the rich, the problem with the rich is it depends on what you mean by the rich. There's really good work being done on this by some sociologists. If you look at the US data on this, when you're going after millionaires, they just don't generate that much income because there's very few of them and they don't actually have that much money. They move to Florida. If you went for like a tax grab on those folks, there's not that much there. The real money's with the billionaires, but the problem with the billionaires, they don't earn any income. What they do is they pledge their assets to, uh, to a financial entity that then creates 
creates credit in the form of a loan against the assets and they live off of loan income. So it's very hard to actually go after them with income tax because they don't have any income. So we've created kind of financial devices and shells whereby wealth is protected and income is shielded. So it's very hard to go after this stuff. It's not as if everyone sits at home and makes money and gets a PAYE slip. Right, you know, unfortunately, it's very, very different when it comes to the stuff that's at the top. So that's why it's hard to do this. When you say hard, are you saying impossible? It's not impossible. I mean, if you think about the global 15% minimum tax that's been passed by the OECD, the reason that they went for a global minimum is because that's basically what everyone can agree to, and then it's hard for corporations to avoid it. But in terms of taxing very, very high net worth individuals, it is kind of pretty much impossible to do so. That's the dirty little secret. Other solutions that obviously governments, and you've mentioned it a few times, you know, pump, pump, uh, doing pump money into the system. Yeah, but more than pumping money, you've got to like basically change the fundamental distribution of assets. Let's go back to housing, right? Housing is one of the most important assets that any family can have. And once you've got that in the family and the mortgage is paid off, you can use this to remortgage it. You can do it for educational purposes, educational loans for children. It gives everybody a nest egg when they finally you pass, et cetera, et cetera. These are incredibly important parts of generational intergenerational wealth. And what we've got, particularly with the Conservative Party, is uh, a party that is captured by basically petty rentiers who don't want any new houses built because that will affect their property values. So building houses, lots and lots of them, as the Conservative Party used to do in the 50s and 60s, would be an amazing way to redistribute wealth and and, and in the long term change the distribution of income and wealth in the country. But we just seem paralysed and unable to do this. Uh, You talk about dual interest rates. It's quite a a complex uh, suggestion. Can you talk us through dual interest rates? Yeah, sure. Essentially, you know, there's this idea that central banks have one interest rate, the price of money, you'll raise it or lower it. And it's simply not true. You could have multiplicity of different interest rates. The European Central Bank is actually getting very close to this now. They have a program called the Teltro, Targeted Long-Term Loans. And you can create a negative interest rate on a Teltro. And what you're essentially doing is subsidizing the cost of investment. So if you want to get money to go into green sectors so that you can shockproof your economy against rising temperatures, one of the ways to do it is to create basically dual interest rates whereby the cost of borrowing for investing in sector A over sector C, it's essentially credit policy, uh, uh, is uh, is uh, borne by the central bank. Now, you know, is the central bank taking a loss there? Well, it depends because if the central bank and the treasury work together and you can then have partial ownership in the assets that's built and therefore you get some of the income stream back, you can make the whole thing net positive. So there is no financial risk in doing so. So, th- th- I mean, this was very much what we were writing in a low inflation environment. The fact that we're now entering what may be a sustained higher inflation environment changes and challenges that a little bit. But to the extent that there are sort of creative ways of financing things that we need without it simply being printing money, there's lots of ways to do it. Yes, I mean, there was one uh, suggestion you made in the book. I mean, it was one of your main ideas was to have a national wealth fund, basically on the gr- on the grounds that interest rates are so low, it costs virtually nothing to have it. But that's no longer true, really. And that was one of your major proposals, right? It was indeed. But, you know, we could still say that we could do it because it's really about the cost of funding, right? So every time that there's a major financial crisis, which happens basically every decade, decade and a half, what happens is equities fall by about 50%. 
and government bonds rally because everyone wants them as a safe haven. So the interest rate on government bonds go negative and the price goes through the roof. So at that point in time, even if there is an inflationary environment, you've got a re negative real rate on government bonds. You should issue an extra 20% of GDP because the market wants it because it's a safe haven. And you lock in those interest rates at that point in time, which was a mistake that we didn't do in COVID, which is going to come back to haunt us. But you can lock in those long-term rates at a negative real rate. And then what you could do is buy all the equities that have been dumped, put them into a national wealth fund. It's not nationalization. You're not trying to run the companies. You're doing this as a kind of national wealth fund, Abu Dhabi style. And then what happens when the economy recovers, those equities go up in price and you get the dividends from that. And from that, you could fund a huge amount of useful expenditure. And what you're doing is essentially capitalist. You're buying cheap. You're doing an arbitrage. You're not altering the companies. You're putting them into a big fund. And then you're basically distributing the profits and dividends. Yeah, but sounds rather like you're um, asking the government to take a massive bet on the stock market. Well, they, they always do. I mean, if you think about it, what did we do during COVID? We turned the, turned the taps on through quantitative easing. We put floors under prices. We made sure the assets didn't fall precipitously. We guaranteed the treasury market. We do this all the time. Whenever there's a crisis, we end up doing that. All I'm saying is next time we're doing it, can we please get some of the upside? Right. So many of these uh, suggestions you've got, I, I would you know, t tell me if you disagree, but they sound like the sort of things that left wing parties rather than the, you know, the Trump style politics would talk about. And, you know, more housing, try and tax the rich as best you can. I mean, you would also say tax corporations more effectively if you can. I think you talked about, let's just mention that actually a data dividend of some kind, but some sort of way of taxing. Yeah, digital, like the European Digital Services Tax, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so these are the, most of these uh, policies are things that I think you could associate with, not necessarily socialists, but left-wing parties. And yet, the electoral trends are that the winners of all this are the Brexiteers, the Trump voters, uh, the, it is, it is the, the ethno-nationalists who are on the front foot. So why is this anger not being channeled into the Corbyns and his equivalents around Europe. So an inter Corbyn's an interesting one there, because you remember that, that We should first just say election. who he is, actually. Can you just... Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn, ex-leader of the Labour Party. Remember the, the, the projections that they'd run the... Was it the 2017 election out a little bit longer, or 16, that essentially Corbyn might have won? There's this weird surge in popularity. What really did him in was the accusations of anti-Semitism and basically a coup d'etat in his own party. So, you know, to me, it's not clear that, you know, those policies don't have resonance. Similarly, you look at the German coalition now and, and other parties in Europe, the most popular parties by far are Green parties. Green parties tend to the centre-left. So it's absolutely true that most of the attention, most of the noise is on the ethno-nationalists. But let's go back to try and understand that. Why is it? Because it's easier to get angry about immigration than it is to get about corporate taxation. It's actually much easier to weaponize nationalism, which is basically a latent value in any society, than it is a progressive politics. And that's the opportunism that you see with people like Trump. When tr Trump's a fa fascinating character in this, he stumbled into his coalition. It was sitting there in Wisconsin. It was sitting there in Indiana, waiting to be picked up. 20 years have been taken for granted by the Democrats. And he walks into a room in this factory in, in Wisconsin and says, I get it. I totally get it. You've been screwed. All your jobs have been sent to China. And, you know, you're the guys that are paying for it. Well, the people who are, you know, making money off this alliance, living high in the hogs in New York and, and doing all their finance stuff or words to that effect. And the whole room looked at him and went, you finally get it. Finally, there's somebody who gets this. 
this. Well, that was exactly the same claim that Bernie Sanders was making. Yes, but so, that, again, you know? Sanders lost, and, and Corbyn lost, and he lost more heavily the second time. So, it, oh, absolutely. It, yeah, but he was also he was also being branded an anti-Semite at the same time. So well, let's yeah, remember that. That's right. But I mean, yeah, I, I think it's 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 difficult to argue that uh, against the the idea that the right have benefited more from this anger than the left. And, it depends on which country. Mm. No, I, I reject it. It depends okay. on which countries you look at. That's simply not true. If you look at the governing coalition in Portugal and in Spain, it's a left-wing coalition. If you look at who's running Germany now, even if you take Linder seriously, they're basically committed to a green transformation in many of these policies. I think when you look at Britain and the United States, you get a very misleading version of what's going on. Mm. So in that case, are you thinking there will be a reset? I mean, are you optimistic that uh, the politicians are going are gonna to sort of meet, meet the situation and, and, and diffuse the anger? If there is going to be one, it's going to be over climate. And the way that I see that this plays out is very different for the US, for everyone else. The Democrats have not done a great job under Biden of convincing anyone they really know what they're doing. And because they never really had a majority in Congress, Joe Manchin, who is the West Virginia senator, is basically defending the carbon-heavy uh, business model of his state. And there's a whole bunch of states. If you look at the most Republican states in the union, they all have carbon. It's extraction, transformation, transportation is the main core of its business model. So when they look at decarbonization, they look at the Green New Deal, they see a mortal threat to their business models. And they look around and look at the Midwest and say, well, we saw what the Democrats did to the Midwest with all their trade policies. They talked about how we would all prosper and we singularly didn't. Why should we trust these guys with this Green New Deal thing? So they don't. So they're going to polarize. What you're going to see is the Republicans turn into power in 24 with or without Trump. And you're going to see a real doubling down on carbon. They're going to go completely in the opposite direction, irrespective of 40 degree weather and all the rest of it. They're going to be the last great carbon bonanza. You're going to see something quite opposite in Europe. Europe is actually the most successful case of policy-led decarbonization in the world, and they're going to continue that. But to do that, they're critically relying on China and Chinese supply chains for a lot of what they need, whether it's the refinement of rare earth metals, whether it's for polycarbon, for uh, polysilicate, for um, for solar panels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they're going to continue to do this. And China is extraordinarily serious about this because their northern cities are facing wet bulb temperatures over the next. 10 to 15 years if they don't actually get this right. So I think the reset is coming, but the reset is going to be Europe and Europe and the US increasingly diverging and uh, the EU and China increasingly cooperating. And the US will be the outlier on this until it becomes so unbearably hot that essentially they will need to pay attention as well. But at that point in time, the tragedy will be the only tech that matters, the only investment that matters will be adaptation tech and the, the Americans will be 10 years behind everyone else. Does that mean you're quite confident that uh, there will be at least some parts of the world where changes as radical as you think are necessary will actually be carried out because you know it's difficult to see the EU and and, and indeed many European governments as, as radical governments they may they may be sort of edging towards the policies you favor but it doesn't seem to be the kind of uh, sea change of ideas that you're suggesting has occurred in response to previous crises 
The ideas are there. I mean, as Milton Friedman famously said in Capitalism and Freedom, the ideas to any crisis, the response to any crisis depend upon the ideas that are lying around. And it's not there's a shortage of ideas, there is a shortage of political will to implement them. And I think that's absolutely right. But, you know, but let's focus on this for a minute, right? The, the American West's lifeblood is the Colorado River. The Colorado River is in a 1600-year drought and is running out. What happens when California doesn't have water? What happens when Southern Europe has the type of temperatures that cause wildfires of American continental scale every year? That's when politicians have nowhere to hide. That's when the ideas have to come off the shelf simply as an adaption response. So, you know, humans are very adaptive when they have to be adaptive. We haven't had to do it yet, but that time is coming. Yeah, but I guess what's uh, I mean, confusing me about that analysis is what, why wouldn't, you know, taking the environment out of it, why wouldn't the uh, inequality, the various issues you described at the beginning, which are driving this anger, why would they not be sufficient to engender the kind of radicalism that you think is needed to, to, to actually address these issues? Well, as you say, uh, and as you correctly pointed out, there's two sides to the way that this can go. One is a kind of, you know, progressive uh, center-left response, and the other one is ethno-nationalism, and ethno-nationalism seems to sell and is great for the politics of destruction. I mean, you know, Brexit being the best example. You know, you, to, to make the following, to make the argument that you need to leave the world's largest free trade zone in order to sign more free trade agreements is truly remarkable. And yet you can get away with that, at least in the short term. So I think like the politics of destruction have been what we've been living through for the past decade. And that has basically taken the sting out of a lot of this. I heard that someone said to me in London, a nice way to think about it is the Tories have hit upon a winning formula that Labour can't copy. It's called nationalism for the North and asset protection for the South. And I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it. And there are parallels to that in the US, I guess. Absolutely, because it's the anti-woke. You know, climate change isn't a problem. What we need to worry about is pronouns. It's like, really? But I guess if you're vexed enough, Okay, so uh, why don't you just, um, before we close this, tell us how you think this will develop? I mean, you're saying there are two, two responses to this anger. Uh, what do you, what, yeah, what, what are you expecting to happen? I expect that over the next decade, and this is very much, you know, me responding to the moment and the fact that we're both sitting in forty-degree heat and neither of us are constitutionally built for this, the, that what's going to drive this is less the kind of political economy of inequality and more and more our collective response or lack thereof to accelerating and deleterious climate change. That's what's going to drive things over the next decade increasingly. Right at the start, I talked about how you can imagine the world as a kind of a long-term equilibrium and you get shocked and eventually you return to the equilibrium, right? You know, plus a chance, plus LMM shows, as it were. But I don't think we're in that world anymore. I think that these shocks are not normally distributed. They, they're like buses. They come along all at once. They reinforce each other. And they're pushing you further and further away from the equilibrium that you're used to into a kind of very, very new world, one with structurally higher levels of inflation, volatility, and basic prices. And it's, I was thinking through this morning, what would it be? What, how would I go about setting up a 30-year retirement portfolio of financial assets? How could I imagine what the world would look like in 2050, given the fact that Britain this week has the weather of 2050, according to a Met Office simulation from just last year? How can I price that in? What assets would I buy? 
what bond is going to be there in 30 years other than the really big ones? What does that mean for asset allocation? So I think these are the things that are going to be driving this rather than sort of the fact of inequality. And just where do you think that will lead? I mean, do you think, you know, to take Amazon, Google, Apple, who are, you know, the, the, those companies, do you think they will ever be broken in terms of their power over tax systems and uh, their ability to, to hold these incredible profits? Or, you know, are governments never going to be able to tackle that? It's a really interesting question. I mean, if you think about the European Digital Services Act, I mean, this is the first time that they said no really irrespective of the OECD 15% tax ever going through the US Senate, we are going to basically treat you as a special type of corporation and you're going to pay these taxes, otherwise you don't get to operate here. And I think as we're beginning to see for geopolitical reasons and for lots of other reasons, a kind of deglobalization of the world we've built over the past 30 years, then you're going to see much more kind of block behavior in terms of if you want to make it, buy it and sell it in this area, these are the rules you play by. And that's got nothing to do with anywhere else. So, you know, I can see Hungary playing the spoiler. I can see the Irish having a whinge about their corporation tax. But ultimately, Europe will move in a sort of broadly similar direction. The United States will head off a carbon cliff in the other direction. And China will continue to install more wind every year than the rest of the world has. But you're saying in the future it will be trade blocks that, yeah. oh, that yeah. drive Definitely. change and, Definitely. Uh, uh, yep. and will become the key factors in politics, actually. I, I believe that that is inexorably written into the sands of time. All right. Well, Mark Blythe, it's been very interesting talking to you. Th thank you very much. Oh, it's been a pleasure.